Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, awesome podcast today and subject I didn't know too much about. Who do we talk to? We talked to Michael Shalov from the Fireblocks company, which just raised $310 million which is all going to infrastructure to help people that get scared coming into crypto, which is I don't know, more or less everyone, especially when there's a lot of risk at stake. So tended to geared towards institutions. Fireblocks is a infrastructure for getting into the world of crypto, but not just getting assets into cold storage, but getting them into safe storage, yet also hooking into all of the cool powers that DeFi and the rest of the crypto ecosystem gives you. So we talked to Michael about what it's like to build that company and really how this company fits into the overall sphere of the crypto world and what they have really unlocked and are enabling over at the world of Fireblocks. Yeah, absolutely. This is like a, a huge bridge to crypto to me. And it's an institutional bridge, not only to crypto, but it's also an institutional bridge to DeFi. So that's what's super exciting about what Fireblocks is doing. There are a lot of crypto custodians out there, you know, Coinbase, Gemini, they will hold your keys. There's companies like BitGo, that sort of thing. But Fireblocks does more than that for institutions. They actually give them exposure to DeFi protocols. So if you're an institution, you want to trade something on Uniswap, but you want to do it um, in a way that secures your private keys, or if you want to deposit funds into Compound or Aave, Fireblocks does this. So David, this is really cool because I think it is, um, I guess, living out uh, one of the predictions we've made for a while, which is kind of the protocol sync thesis, mm -hmm. that the most decentralized, credibly neutral protocols will kind of tend to fall to the bottom of everything else, and everything else will be built on top of them. We also talk a little bit about the DeFi mullet, which is sort of an extension of the, the crypto protocols thesis, the idea that fintechs are going to start building on these DeFi protocols and become these, these hybrid crypto fintech type things. And we're really seeing that play out with the Fireblock story. That's like exactly what they are doing. They are the bridge to, uh, to this entire thesis. For me, the most interesting part of this conversation was how... The similar skills from the TradFi world, which we would consider to be like cybersecurity, when you take cybersecurity skills and then you apply them to DeFi and you use Ethereum and Bitcoin as your backend, like all of a sudden you have cybersecurity not around, you know, information and IT for you know, a traditional company, but now you have cybersecurity around bank accounts, right? Like your Ethereum wallet, your Bitcoin wallet. And that fundamentally changes the role that Fireblocks has for going from a cybersecurity background to just infrastructure security and protection around your bank account, which is your private key. And so it really just like is a new evolution as to what cybersecurity means, because now the cybersecurity is now fintech. Now it's a fintech service, not just, you know, protection around like your servers. Uh, and so the changing nature of the role of similar skills from TradFi or from the legacy world into DeFi, I think is a really interesting through line that if you pay attention, you can glean a lot of lessons out of this uh, episode with Michael. Yeah, I love this conversation. Hugely bullish on what's happening with DeFi. Like the institutions mm -hmm. now have a way to enter directly into DeFi protocols, not just one or two, but like all of them. Make sure you stay tuned where Michael talks about how like through Fireblocks, they basically have access to all of the DeFi protocols that are available that can be connected through Wallet Connect. Um, one question though, David, we did ask him near the end that I was sort of concerned about thinking about this is like, Fireblocks is not bankless. You are giving up your private keys 
to uh, to another entity in order to use it. And institutions kind of have to do that anyways in order to play in the space. So right. what happens if everyone starts giving up their private keys? Do we get a less bankless world? So he answers that question. I think he had a pretty nuanced answer, which I really appreciated. So guys, we think you are going to enjoy this episode. Before we get into it, we want to thank the sponsors that made it possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what you are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to Arbitrum Layer 2. To get up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited about our next guest. We have Michael Shaloff. He is the CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks. What is Fireblocks? Fireblocks is like the AWS of crypto banking. He's grown this company to crypto unicorn status already. So in late July, they raised over $310 million at a $2 billion valuation. Just blows my mind. If you're in the crypto institutional space, you already know about Fireblocks, but if you're not, maybe if you're a bankless listener, it's kind of a DeFi power user, then Fireblocks is probably one of the most important companies in crypto that you've not heard of. And here's my favorite part. Fireblocks is DeFi friendly. So I definitely see Fireblocks as providing an essential bridge between the institutions we've been craving to come into crypto and DeFi. This is part of the protocol sync thesis in action, we think, where the decentralized money protocols become the base layer for everything else. Michael, after that long intro, sir, want to say welcome to Bankless. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, David, for having me. 
doing great and you know excited to join you guys in this session. Well, I bet you're doing great because you guys just raised $300 million at a $2 billion valuation. I have two questions about this. First, how's that feel? <laughs> and then second, what are you going to do with all this money? Um, so it feels great. I mean, I think that uh, it's, I wouldn't say just the valuation and the money. I think it's the fact that it happened in a fairly short period of time, right? Because we started the company back in 2018 and we launched our product about two years ago. Uh, and probably the most important, um, actually the most important numbers for us is the, are, are the fact that we have 500 clients, right? And the fact that we have uh, about uh, one, we grew the company to about uh, 160 employees, right? In that period of time. So just uh, we're seeing the market expanding and uh, yeah, generally exciting. Um, the, the main thing around, I think, uh, the funding itself, right? Or the main question is, what, what are we going to do with the money? Is uh, is mostly around the fact that uh, we need to continue to invest uh, first and foremost, right, in engineering and to be able to support the client base to support uh, more and more institutions that are coming to the space, uh, both from engineering standpoint, operations standpoint, customer success, customer support, and so on. And the second aspect is that for our clients, it's sort of very important to understand that they're dealing with a stable player that can, you know, uh, work with them on the long term, right? And the fact that we have now the balance sheet and the money and the um, and the ability to stay independent is um, extremely important for for our current clients and especially for the people that we are currently working on doing business with. So you mentioned, Michael, more and more institutions coming to this space. So is that what you're seeing? Are institutions starting to flood into the space? And give us a, a flavor for who these institutions are, maybe some names listeners might recognize. Yeah, so um, we are seeing, we're seeing quite a lot of the banks. It's, it's a bit weird, right? Because you know, I guess in many ways, the entire essence of uh, crypto, right, was to basically maybe disintermediate the banks, right? But uh, inevitably what happens is that, at least right now, a lot of those banks, they do have, um, whether it is FOMO, right? Looking at the FinTech players and uh, trying to sort of like tap into that amount of, into that activity, into that revenue stream, into the opportunity, right? So that's, you know, one reason why they're doing it. And I think that the most interesting aspect of it is that the more intelligent group of, I would say, uh, financial institutions, traditional financial institutions, you know, banks, exchanges, uh, some of the more traditional fintechs, right? They're basically looking at the underlying technology. And I guess in many ways, what we call DeFi, but eventually the essence of blockchain, right? The ability to have... Uh, autonomous finance that is driven through smart contracts and this sort of you know smart programmable money and they understand that this is might be the most uh, impactful and interesting technology um, that they can you know, that on one hand, if they're there early, they can use it as part of their competitive advantage, right? And on the flip side, if they're late, uh, they can be completely disintermediated, right? So 
I think that there is a broad realization of that. And that's why I think people are sort of, those institutions are coming in, right? So I guess a good example that uh, we always give, and they invested in us in, their, in the Series C, is uh, Bank of New York Mellon that we are working with uh, to basically deploy the technology with, uh, uh, and build those capabilities. And for, you know, f- for the listeners that are unfamiliar with Bank of New York Mellon, it's like the oldest bank in, in the United States, and they're the biggest custodian in the world. In fact, I'm not sure the, the exact number right now, but they hold somewhere around $40 trillion of assets, right? So the majority of the assets in the world are actually sitting in Bank of New York Mellon. And, and they do see, um, it's, it's sort of public information, but they do have a fairly extensive uh, plan around not only how they do you know, crypto like Bitcoin, Ethereum, but really how this is sort of, uh, prog- what, what is the progression to really touch on the uh, traditional assets or the existing assets that they're currently custody and how they can basically bring them into blockchain, tokenize them and so on. Michael, uh, you mentioned um, FOMO in the context of institutions. Uh, we talk about retail FOMO all of the time. Is it true that institutions can also get FOMO? Um, the individuals within the institutions can get FOMO, right? So, <laughs> no, I guess like you know, people are people, right? And uh, and uh, yes, I mean, in reality, uh, the what happened was is that inst all those banks and institutions, they somewhere in between FOMO and basically, uh, you know, being caught off guard, right? If you take JP Morgan Chase as an example, right? And I think it's a it's an interesting example to look at. They sort of switched side over the last, uh, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months, right? From the CEO of the bank saying, you know, this is a complete fraud. I don't remember the exact wording over there, right? Oh, I remember all of that. You know, Jamie Dimon said this, and crypto Twitter went absolutely berserk on these yeah. comments. But yes. Yeah, but but I guess his his main comment was, uh, I think he had two comments. One, he said like, you know, or three comments, that it's like the biggest bubble of all time, you know, it's fraud. And and his third comment, which, which I, I appreciate the most, is that he said that he will uh, fire any employee that will touch crypto because he's stupid <laughs> yes. enough to basically uh, invest in crypto, right? That was, uh, that was basically his uh, most probably interesting comment. Um, yeah, I appreciate that, uh, you know, very opinionated gentleman, of course. Uh, but the, but the, the reality is, right, that the bank sort of uh, publicly changed his stance in, you know, very quickly within almost 12 months. Um, but probably the most, the, 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 the crazy story, which I think is sort of uh, maybe not very obvious to people from the outside, is that think about a situation where basically your employees are penalized for, uh, for uh, touching this asset, working with the technology, right? And then the, everybody wake up one morning and, and basically they tell them like, okay, now we need to go and execute against something that we basically have zero internal knowledge, right? No one in the bank have ever done a single Bitcoin or a crypto transaction. Now let's go and offer it to our, you know, tens of millions of clients, right? 
And um, that's like a very difficult situation where uh, you basically trying to go from, you know, zero to 60 uh, very quickly, but you never took any driving lessons, mm -hmm. right? Now, when I say FOMO, what I basically, it's sort of reflecting the situation because if you think about how this should have happened if it was well-planned, they had, you know, 10 years, right? To basically investigate, educate themselves, you know, do, you know, test, testing and just accumulate the knowledge the same way that I and you guys did, right? Uh, but they are being, they've been caught off guard and, and the fact that they think some of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, biggest uh, fintechs, right, moving so quickly into the space sort of forces them to react quickly in a way that is really unplanned. And I think that actually offers a great explanation as to why Fireblocks has raised such a large amount of money with such a strong valuation is because when institutions FOMO and when they realize that they are behind the curve with regards to infrastructure development, they realize that they need to outsource some of this and then they turn to Fireblocks. And so I, that brings me to, I think, what we should really get into next, Michael, which is exactly what is Fireblocks and why would an institution choose to leverage Fireblocks rather than going and building out all of these same things in-house and doing it themselves. And while you give that answer, I'd like to ask the listener to put this into the context of the protocol sync thesis, which if you're not familiar with, you should definitely go and do your homework on the protocol sync thesis, because I think that's going to be a theme of what Fireblocks is and what it's doing throughout the show. But uh, Michael, question to you, what actually is Fireblocks and what is the products and service that you guys have to offer? Yeah, so... We're basically making the ability for businesses to basically offer services in crypto easy. What does it mean? The first thing that it means is that we basically provide them a secure access to, uh, to, to storing uh, those assets. Um, so essentially a wallet technology that is secure and designed for institutional usage, right? So hot storage, cold storage, warm storage, all that is be being basically packaged as a technology that they can consume and install and use, right? With all the complexities, regulations, policies, and workflows that they need. The second capability is around the uh, ability to transfer assets between themselves and between their counterparties or business partners in a secure way. So I assume that like that most of the people on the show familiar with the fact that when you're sending the transaction, you're sending a Bitcoin transaction or you're sending Ethereum transaction to your favorite ex exchange or for your to your favorite uh, DeFi protocol, there is those, you know, depending if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, 15 seconds or 15 minutes of a heart attack, right? That you don't know if you actually put the address, <laughs> the, the, yes. the right address, and if you made a mistake, right? If, yeah. Even if you're a veteran, right. you still get that, yeah. by the way. Yeah, it, never it never goes, goes away. away. Yeah, that's, that's part of the extreme fun in this space. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I think that most uh, most retail users and most consumers and even prosumers, uh, they would do a handful of transactions per day, right? If you are operating a brokerage, uh, an institutional brokerage, you can end up doing hundreds of transactions like this per day, right? If you are um, 
a big exchange, right? You we're talking about thousands, right? So um, clearly, to scale up, and by the way, an average transaction size in our network is around one hundred thousand dollars, right? So if you make a mistake, it's going to be a very costly mistake, mm-hmm. right? Um, and therefore, what we basically created is this concept that is called the Fireblocks Network, which is essentially a directory, a set of APIs and plugins that basically creating um, sort of like an off-chain protocol that allows you to securely transfer those deposit addresses and identify uh, the destination wallet or the counterparty that you're sending this transaction to and guarantee that, you know, uh, if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sending a transaction to, to David, this transaction will go to David by selecting him in a directory. Uh, it's not going to go to Ryan. It's not going to be sent to the, you know, to the void, right? So that's basically the second capability, the Fireblocks network that is, uh, became, you know, sort of almost the de facto platform to, to work with, uh, with digital assets. And then uh, the last capability that we have is around um, um, all the access to tokenization, smart contracts, and DeFi. So it, it, it is slightly like, you know, different things in our offering, but it's basically all the packaging around secure access to um, you know, what we will call decentralized finance. So you just said uh, three things there, Michael. One is wallet, custody, storage, right? Mm-hmm. The second is a, a network to route transactions. And the third is access to what we call money protocols, DeFi protocols, right? And staking, maybe I'll bundle in there too. So yeah. those three things. But I want to ask an obvious question. You kind of alluded to this. If you're like the person who just sent at an institution a uh, you know transaction with $5 million in it, and you're not quite sure whether it's the right address or not, right? Like you may have missed a character, like oops, right? That is not a good feeling. And obviously institutions <laughs> can't do that on a daily basis. But like, is that like, I think some people are still sort of wondering, right? Like um, why can't institutions just custody things on their own? Like the individuals listening to Bankless, they do this all of the time, right? So why is it so difficult for institutions to enter this space? Why do they need those three services? Why can't they just use, you know, hardware wallets and MetaMask and deposit in Aave themselves? Why do they need Fireblocks? Because of the complexity uh, and the security level that they need, right? So when we started Fireblocks, that's what institutions were doing, right? They would... I remember my the first time I walked into one of our bigger customers and they had a Ledger Nano with, you know, $80 million worth of Bitcoin on it. And they were doing, you know, 50 transactions per day probably. And the way that it was controlled is that one guy had the Ledger Nano, the other guy had half of the passcode, and the third guy had... The, the 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 pin code and the, the the third guy had the other half of the pin code right and every time that they wanted to do a transaction um they basically had to come all of them together and and you know collaborate and sort of check do all the check and checks and balances right to basically guarantee that uh, they're sending the right amount that they're, they're putting all the protocols in place 
And those protocols can be, um, the pro those protocols can include, first and foremost, are we sending it to the right recipient, right? But have we, they, they have compliance obligations, right? So they need to take that deposit address, scan that deposit address in something like chain analysis or elliptic, right? To, to guarantee that it's not a bad, bad actor, right? Because they do need to operate within, um, um, you know, the applicable law, right? Depending on the, on the jurisdiction, right? And, and, and for sanctions and things like that, right? Uh, they might have all kind of a procedures that they guarantee to the regulator that a transaction above, you know, $100,000 is going to be uh, reviewed and approved by their accounting team, right? And, you know, and last but not least, I mean, let's assume the scenario that I just explained, you can have maybe like three people that uh, uh, is involved in that process. But what happen, happens if you need to have five people or 10 people or 20 people, right, that are involved and maybe like, you know, those they're working in shifts, right? So um, the complexity that is required to really do it in a robust way uh, with high availability uh, with uh, all the policies and procedures that those uh, that those entities need to comply is well beyond uh, what something like a hardware wallet can provide, right? And and this is basically where Fireblocks excels, right? That you on top of those basic offerings, you have a policy and workflow engine where as a customer, you can essentially codify uh, all those uh, workflows and all those approval processes. At the fundamental level of the wallet, it's actually enforced cryptographically through this technology that is called MPC, multi-party -party computation, right? So you actually don't have a situation that you're relying on a one single device to hold your private key. The private key is distributed uh, in, you know, among a set of servers and endpoints and mobile devices. And even if one device fails, lost, or actually like, you know, a quorum of even if even under a situation where a quorum of those devices fail uh, fails or, or or being lost, you can still recover, right? So all those functionalities are you know fairly complicated, and it takes time to build, right? It requires pretty significant expertise, both uh, from cybersecurity domain, domain IT, cloud, mobile, and so on, and. Most institutions, they just don't have that skill set. And even if they have that skill set, it takes several years to basically build a product with all the functionalities that we have and you know they, are that they need right to, to actually to operate. Michael, I just want to rewind the clock for the listener here back to like 2017, 2018. There was this mantra when the crypto bull market was getting a little long in the tooth, but it was still rising. Everyone was euphoric. Everyone was excited. And this mantra that people kept repeating, the institutions are coming, right? That was supposed to be the next wave of crypto adoption to send prices even higher and higher. But like, I remember at the time what you were saying about um, like large crypto funds storing funds on hardware wallets like that was how everyone was doing it back then in 2017 2018 i know a story of a crypto fund i won't name them but like they used to talk about how they would hide their recovery keys in a safe deposit box in a bank and they would like use glitter and glue on top of the envelopes 
to create like a certain pattern of glue that couldn't be like repeated and tampered with and, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess made phony. And you couldn't really bring the institutions into that environment because if you are a large bank or a large you know, pool of capital, you're not going to enter that level of Wild West. So we needed like this layer of infrastructure in order to actually get the institutions to come first. What I'm saying is 2018, 2017, 2018, the institutions are coming, wasn't even possible for them to come. That was a pipe dream. We did not have the custodial infrastructure on top of this to allow the institutions to start pouring capital in. And I think that's basically what you've built over the last three years with Fireblocks. Does any of that resonate? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely that's uh, the majority of the story, right? I think that... There was lack of infrastructure, right, for that to happen at the time. Honestly, just to reflect on 2017, 2018, I think uh, in a retrospect, right, there were a lot of uh, probably regulatory issues, right, that even if the bigger institutions would have tried to enter the space, I think the regulation was still not there for them to really, you know, jump fully in, right? Um, But honestly, those are, I think, the two main things that have been resolved over the last uh, three years or so, uh, which I think that that I think allow a much more, um, you know, a real interest and a real movement of institutions into the space. And and honestly, you know, with, with how much I want to always say, like, you know, the institutions are coming, it's not there, you know. When a big, when big institutions and even small institutions, even some of the smaller banks that we are working with, it's a fairly lengthy process. It takes them somewhere between, you know, six to nine months to basically go from inception to really signing contract and and start deploying the technology, and probably it takes them almost twelve months to go from zero to production where they can offer offer the, those services. Right, so. Uh, we are sort of in the middle of, of, of that process and in the middle of that happening. Um, so I think we're already starting to see some of those uh, vehicles uh, coming into the market. We are uh, going to see even more of them towards the end of this year. And I think that there will be quite a lot that we're going to see in 2022. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Michael thus far. In the second half of the show, we bring up the conversation of regulation and how Michael and Fireblocks has had to traverse the changing regulatory landscape, as well as how are they positioning themselves for future unknown regulatory headwinds. Ryan asked Michael the question, what happens if Fireblocks is too successful? Is that a risk vector for Ethereum? Can they suck in too much money and become too much of a centralized risk? for the rest of the ecosystem. I thought his answer, Michael's answer to that was particularly fascinating. All that and more is coming in the second half of the show. So don't go anywhere. But first, before we get there, we need to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you're getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order 
across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform and that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live and get all of your DApps all in one place. So when we talk about some of the 500 customers that you have, like I see a couple categories here. There are kind of like the crypto banks, as we call them, like the BlockFi's of the world. These are a bit more, you know, crypto native, and I'm curious what they use you for. There also seems to be the second persona of like funds. You know, Galaxy Digital might be an example of that. Large capital pools. I don't know if they're staking. I don't know what they're doing, but I'd be curious to hear a user story for them. And then there are these fintechs and new banks. You mentioned one of the banks, Mellon, um, but also these fintechs like Revolut that are using Fireblocks for things. So like, walk us through what each of these groups are using you for. Is it across those categories? Is it like, you know, custody and also like, you know, payment, you know, trade or like when I deposit funds in something like BlockFi, how is Fireblocks potentially getting involved? Yeah, so the... The way that we segment the market right now in a very high level is that we have what we call crypto trading firms, right? So that can be Galaxy, it can be um, you know Block Tower, it can be proprietary trading, hedge fund, broker. But essentially, it's either they're basically trading their own money, they're trading money of their investors, or there are some kind of intermediary that is facing businesses from one side or accredited investors in one, on one side and then um, liquidity exchanges and so on on the other side, right? So that's basically category number one. That category is about 45, like basically 45% of our client base. And then the other category is what we will call uh, business to consumers, right? Or business to retail that for me, although maybe a year ago there was a clear distinction between someone like BlockFi, Celsius, and you know Voyager to someone like uh, Revolut. But I think that over the last 12 months, um, those categories, they become more or less the same type of entity, right? Because, you know, for Revolut, which is the biggest 
um, it's the biggest neobank in Europe. And, you know, for, for, for the listeners that are not familiar with Revolut, they sort of build a name for themselves for offering uh, a credit card and, and, and an app through which you can, if you're traveling through Europe, you basically have very low interchange between, um, uh, you know, different currencies, right? So they, they came with a very interesting offering, you, you know, captured a very large customer base in Europe and then sort of ex- expanded to offering a regular banking services, right? And then they basically went into offering crypto, uh, you know, buy, sell, and, you know, recently also withdrawals, and they have a pretty interesting roadmap over there. And then, you know, when you look at BlockFi and Celsius, they basically almost started from the other side of that uh, uh, of that spectrum, and they basically said, oh, you're already like a very sophisticated user, you already have crypto, deposit with us, we will basically generate yield on that. But then they basically went downstream, right? They basically said, oh, okay, maybe you're not that sophisticated, you can, uh, you know, buy through us or sell through us. And by the way, you know, if you have crypto, why won't you also use our credit card, right? So they almost went down towards what Revolut started with, right? And and I think- uh, Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like yeah. case in point, BlockFi just rolled out a credit card, right? right? They started purely crypto and now they have a Visa card. Right, so I think that at the end of the day, broadly speaking, those are, uh, you know, in the long run, they, they will be, fintechs, uh, neobanks, however we want to call them, right? But basically, wallet providers that will have maybe start from crypto and then diversified into fiat or start with fiat and diversified to crypto. But eventually, I guess there is a hybrid world that all of them are trying to compete to be your main finance app and allow you to do whatever you want. And I think that hopefully, as we all believe here, over time, there will be this like more and more shift into things that are digital assets. So there is a question of like if you want to basically pay uh, or, or or send a transaction that is cross border, why would you even use a credit card? Why would not you just use a stable coin, right? So um, so that, that's I think like you know just the, the holistic vision for all of them. Um, in terms of just you know to your question around where Fireblocks plays in that flow, right? Um, So for all of those offerings, as a retail client, you're basically facing a custodial service uh, that is operated by, um, you know, by by the company, by the app that you're using, right? It's it's not that you have your keys, you know, on on your device, right? You're basically sending your assets to a wallet that is operated by, whether it's BlockFi or Celsius or someone else, right? Uh, and what happens behind the scene is that Fireblocks is the technology provider that powers those wallets, right? So your payment, the deposit address that you see is basically a deposit address that is generated by from of a Fireblocks technology wallet. Um, the funds will be deposited over there. Um, each one of those entities has a different way of doing treasury management, right? So especially if we are looking into sort of those uh, uh, yield accounts, right? It, they need to basically take your Bitcoin and do something with it, right? To execute some kind of strategy that in uh, if you basically deposit one Bitcoin in a year from now, you will be able to receive, you know, one Bitcoin uh, 0.05, right? Like, you know, 5% interest or whatever they, they're currently promising. And, you know, usually there are a couple of strategies, right? To to generate uh, yield, right? 
one strategy, which I would say is one of the most popular strategies, is essentially to lend it to high-grade borrowers. Most of those borrowers are probably uh, very sophisticated hedge funds or crypto funds, right, that um, they they borrow this crypto to um, to short, you know, in some cases to short, in some cases they have other strategies, right? But basically they would borrow, borrow this crypto to execute their trading strategies. Um, another option is to basically service as a gateway into DeFi, right? So you depositing it with a CeFi uh, provider, but the CeFi provider will take advantage of the fact that they have, uh, they can basically face something like Compound or Avi and they will generate yield through Compound or Avi. And then uh, the third one is that they might have some kind of prop trading or proprietary trading strategies by themselves and they will allocate to that portfolio, right? So in general, all of those activities that I just described, um, you know, from a settlement standpoint, I mean, they all require movement of the asset, right? Whether you're forwarding that asset to someone else that is borrowing from you, whether you're trading it now on some kind of centralized exchange, or whether you're basically depositing it into some kind of DeFi protocol. And basically, the institutional desks in those uh, entities that are responsible of executing those strategies and Usually there isn't like one strategy that those entities will go after. They will try to diversify to minimize the risk of some kind of, uh, you know, specific uh, market event. They would use fireworks, right, for the management, the treasury, the movement of the asset. When you say treasury, do you mean custody? Is like is that what you mean? Well, when I say treasury, I basically mean how do you move the asset between, like treasury operation, how do you move, settle the assets between different venues? Like a very simple uh treasury operation might be that, you know, I'm using cold storage within Coinbase, like Coinbase custody, it's like their institutional offering, I'm using them as my cold storage provider, uh, but I also trading on four different exchanges, right? So I need to pull funds out of Coinbase, and now I need to basically deploy that crypto on, you know, Bitstamp, Kraken, FTX, Right, I need to do all this movement. Maybe now I have too much crypto on FTX. I need to go and move that, that crypto to to Bitstamp. So all those movements, this is what I call treasury. Got it. So it's not in those cases when you say treasury, it's not that you're always providing custody for those assets. Though in some cases, it sounds like you can and you do. But when you say treasury operations, you're talking about kind of the movement of those assets, you know, wherever it needs to go, wherever they need to go. Yeah. So. We, we do provide a lot of the custody for those assets, and it really depends uh, on the client. Some clients would use us for 100% of the custody. Some clients will use us for a portion of the custody. Most clients would use us for a certain percentage of custodying the funds. Um, but uh, we also, we are sort of not uh, religious or fundamentally obsessed about it, all the custody is supposed to be with Fireblocks. In fact, we do believe that it's a good thing that you have it diversified across, you know, multiple high, uh, uh, you know, uh, high-grade repeatable providers, just, you know, in terms of risk concentrations and things like that. That kind of brings me to how you see yourselves, Michael. So 
I think you, uh, I understand your background is like cybersecurity, right? Yeah. And so you, you probably started this with like a cybersecurity mindset, right? Like, okay, how do we keep these crypto assets safe? And like, there are these hacks and there's Mt. Gox and there's all of these things that bad things that can happen to your private keys, right? And lots of incentives for people to steal them. But now it seems like you're something else. There's some kind of a fintech, maybe even like a, a bank. I said in the intro, an AWS for crypto banking, basically. And that seems to me to be a good definition. How do you think of yourselves? That's actually a good summary of the, of the journey, right? So when we, when we started, our thesis was that um, it's a, a cybersecurity play for finance. So just as an anecdote, right? I, I really, I've been in the cybersecurity space for about 20 years, right? Before starting Fireblocks, uh, both in you know very technical roles and eventually in you know commercial roles. You know, sold my previous company to the, one of the biggest vendors in the cybersecurity space, and then was running basically their innovation products, which was their mobile and cloud. And when you're in the cybersecurity space, there is actually a very interesting. Uh, uh, again, an interesting number, right, that 40% of the cybersecurity revenue is actually coming from the financial vertical, okay? So what you basically understand when you spend an... I had no idea, by the way. Yeah. And that is in a pre, like, that is in a pre-private key world. No, that's just, right? that's like... Uh, Selling firewalls to J.P. Morgan. Okay, world. got it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the mo so, We're not so dealing with bearer assets in this no, in this no, world. No, 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 yeah. No. no, I think I think there is also like a lot of, by the way, misconception around in the crypto space or the crypto space is being accused for this sort of uh, uh, extreme um, fragility around bear assets and the fact that you can lose those assets. I think people just don't realize the amount of assets, death, hacking that is actually happening in the traditional <laughs> space, right? And, and by the way, you, like yeah. for anyone on this call, every time that you hear that people accusing crypto at being uh, the main driver for ransomware, right? You know, Google, uh, Google FBI um, business email compromise and what you would discover that the amount of fraud and the amount of uh, extortion that is happening on traditional rails with US dollar across SWIFT and and, uh, and and ACH is tenfold than everything that is happening, if not more, than what's happening with ransomware. Because the number for just a very stupid way of doing extortion and 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 phishing, which is called business email compromise. So it's basically someone hacks my account as a CEO and then sends an email to my CFO, tells her, we forgot to pay to this vendor in uh, China $40 million. We need to do it today. Otherwise, they would stop our supply chain. And and the CFO actually, like, you know, goes into the bank accounts and, and wires that money through China. That's like a $3 billion dollars per year fraud, okay? Uh, wow. Yeah, so, and, and that's an FBI number, right? So if you, if you Google it, you'll actually land on, on, a, on a website uh, of the uh, FBI, and that's the, the number that they publish, and you know, they have all those um, um, sort of recommendations of how you're supposed to avoid, okay? 
And no one, accu- no one accuses the banks that basically they are the main driver for, uh, or no one accuses, accuses Swift or ACH that they are the main driver behind uh, a $3 billion uh, loss per year for the U.S. industry. So, um, so, so, so maybe like to go back to, to, to my point is that what you do realize is that the financial, uh, what, what I've realized, right, is that one, the financial industry is at the end of the day probably the most interesting industry to start building to build like some kind of cybersecurity play, right? And it was also very clear for 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 me at that point in time that uh, when we look at blockchain, it's it, it's a transformative technology, right? That uh, you know, assuming that everything plays out right, that all, all those banks. Well, either they will disappear, right, or they will have to replatform into this technology. So it's not going to happen in five years, right? But you know, over the long horizon, it it will happen. And and what we initially set to do is to basically build a security solution. In some ways, you can think about it like an antivirus or a firewall, right, for crypto, right? Um, where very quickly we find ourselves. Well, you know, I personally find myself in probably the most intense crash course around finance uh, that. You know, I had to understand what is an option, what is a derivative, you know, what is settlement, how clearing houses work, and how um, the entire plumbing is, is, is of both the traditional world and the new world is basically structured. And to basically realize that we are actually not a cybersecurity company, we are a fintech infrastructure company that, uh, you know, maybe in some ways, you can you can think about us as the AWS of this space, or you can think about us as the Shopify of this space, but it is a fintech infrastructure company uh, by all means, and you know that's what we are, and 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 I think it also uh, required us to think very differently around our business. What are the risks? What are the regulation? We need compliance people. We need things that you know as a cybersecurity or, an, or just like an enterprise software business, you simply don't have those people in the company, but if you're a fintech company, okay, this is sort of the bread and butter and the cost of running the business. And Michael, I actually think that that is the most interesting part about this conversation where like if Fireblocks was a legacy, just, you know, security company, maybe it's one of its customers would have been like Goldman Sachs and you would have just prevented fraud from Goldman Sachs. But now one of your customers is Ethereum or one of your customers is DeFi, right? And you are connecting, you know, Ethereum to other customers, right? So that is the new infrastructure, the new security that you are providing. And that fundamentally changes the nature of your business, as you just said. And so they talk about that evolution from just going from a software security company to realizing you are now actually dabbling in the world of financial services and kind of to what Ryan said, starts to make fireblocks kind of feel like a new bank, right? Like a kind of a place to deposit your assets. Would you agree with that take? And talk about just the evolution of fireblocks from going from a security providing company to more of a fintech company. Yeah. So I don't think we don't view ourselves uh, honestly as a new bank. We do f- view ourselves as maybe the, you know, if, if you want to take the parallel to the bank, right, then in, in the most traditional way to think about it, maybe we are the uh, 
company that sells the safes right. that are being installed. Right. You guys in are Brinks, bank, because right? it, Brinks yeah. security. Because mm -hmm. Ethereum yeah. is the bank. Yeah, and, and right. Brinks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. bricks, right? And there is, and, and I think that there is also a fundamental question that I always uh, mention to people. And I think, you know, at least for the more traditional financial folks, uh, it just like blows their mind, right? But what is really custody, right, in this space? Because at the end of the day, the blockchain is the custody, right? The, 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 the real sort of custody solution is actually not Fireblocks, uh, it's not uh, BlockFi, it's not Bank of New York Mellon, right? The real custody is Bitcoin, right? The real custody right. is Ethereum, right? Because the ledger, like, of who owns what, right, and the mm -hmm. gatekeepers to to your account is eventually the blockchain mm -hmm. and the miners, right? Um, what we are doing, and the banks, and and uh, uh, is basically the access control here, right? We are the one that are basically helping you to secure identity, helping you to basically secure your password, right? If, if, if maybe like, you know, we're trying to maybe put the analogy in place, if in the traditional space, Citibank is your bank and your custodian, and you know, you have uh, one password on your computer, which is basically your login into your account to transfer the money, right? You know, Fireblocks and all the people that are doing wallets is, you know, the one pass, right? That that helps you to to securely control the password. Now, it's clearly like, you know, to do it in an institutional way is very different, but um, that's basically, I guess, uh, one way to look at it. I think another way to look at it is really, okay, we are the um, financial infrastructure uh, that uh, is more related to maybe at at the most basic layer is like Brinks and the folks that put the safe into the bank. But uh, more broadly today, it's almost like a core banking system, right? So for people that are, are unfamiliar with how banks are run, run in practice, right? Um, there are sort of a dozen companies worldwide, like, uh, you know, Pfizer, Finestra, uh, um, and so on, that those companies basically developed all the um, you know databases and all the software that the banks are running on right the the bank itself is basically a regulatory license a bunch of people you know uh, a customized UI but on the back end there are, there is basically a technology that is usually not not like the, the bigger banks but at least like you know the mid-sized banks it's usually off-the-shelf software that is essentially running all that it has a bunch of plugins for your credit cards for your for for the compliance for for wiring money and so on for lending and borrowing uh, and fireblocks is sort of the equivalent of that for digital assets right your business you have the license or you don't need the license, assume now you want to, to do that. You consume our software and, you know, we make it very easy for you and very robust for you to run it. It's funny because this is all a new paradigm. You know, like uh, when people are new to crypto, they'll get a, a hardware device like a ledger or something, right? And they'll be like, oh, my tokens are on this USB stick. And it's like, no, they're, they're actually not they're still on Ethereum, right? What you have on that USB stick is private keys to go unlock a vault on Ethereum. Yeah. That's why when you're saying like uh, Fireblocks is like Brinks, it's almost like LastPass because you are doing the private key management for 
unlocking the vaults that are on Ethereum or Bitcoin or pick your other blockchain, right? But the actual storage of the assets, as weird as this is, happens on the chains themselves, right? That's where the assets always are. It's a different mental model that I think people need to wrap their heads around and it's new for crypto. It's very difficult for people to- It is, it's weird. Yeah. It's a little weird at first. Yeah. Well, let's talk about something else that's weird. And, and that is this DeFi thing. It's kind of weird, kind of strange for people. And I think, um, I, I've heard you say before, Michael, some of your past conversation interviews that you're you're a DeFi bull. And it seems like you guys have oriented your products that way too. Can you tell us why? Why are you bullish on DeFi? Um, in one st sentence, because, or maybe if it's like in one word, because that's the essence, right? I mean, at the end of the day, um, right, there is Bitcoin and Bitcoin has a, some specific property around uh, um, a reserve, right? A reserve asset. But everything else, the reason why we're doing it is because we are able to create those tokens that represent some kind of asset, right? I mean, it can be, uh, you know, stable coin, it can be NFT, it can be uh, a kitty, right? A digital kitty uh, on, on, on the blockchain. It can be a real estate asset, by the way. I mean, funny enough, I think people don't, don't really remember, but the NFT standard was actually... Uh, I think originally was invented because people wanted to tokenize fractional real estate, right? Uh, and, uh, and, um, and, and then what we're actually able to do is to build this unbelievable machinery that are the DeFi apps, right? That replicate what traditional financial institution had to do in a centralized way with huge amount of counterparty risk, with human procedures and human oversight and human errors, right? And we are able to execute those things in an autonomous way without, with governance, right? Uh, and with autonomous governance and, and, and basically allow interactions for, between two people over the internet from, you know, two sides of the world uh, without having with having zero trust both between them, but also like, you know, there is no um, intermediary that they both need to trust that might de default defraud or make a mistake, which will impact both of them. Let me ask you this though, like you're from cybersecurity, Michael, like isn't that a little bit terrifying? DeFi terrifying, like one hack, one error in the code, $250 million gone you know, parody wallet hack. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. I mean, I am. Okay. But, uh, I think that it's a maturity, right? There, there's sort of like a maturity curve that happening over there. I mean, I'll give maybe like a very different example. You know, I, a year ago I bought a Tesla and most of the time I drive on autopilot. Right, and it works. Like you know, I works like <laughs> I'm glad. I, I, I drive at sixty miles per hour. You know, on autopilot, and I sort of trust the the vehicle to be able to perform something that probably three years ago or even five years ago would be terrifying. Right, and 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 it's not that like you know there aren't examples of bad things that happen. Right, um, and you know, you talk with people that uh, were. Uh, uh, using autopilot uh, 
you know, three, four years ago, they tell you about those like, you know, crazy clunky experiences that it was just like stop in the middle of the highway and it was just a complete disaster, right? But over three years, basically Tesla was able to bring it into something that, look, you know, I can drive for two hours without essentially, you know, trying to interfere with, with, uh, with the driving, right? So I think, you know, that the unfortunate reality is that there will be a lot of money will be made, a lot of money will be lost by the time that we'll get to the point where uh, we see full maturity, right, of DeFi. But with that being said, you know, you look at the ma- on, on the massive protocols that we have, Compound, Aves, uh, Uniswap, right? I think that, you know, knock on wood, right, with those protocols, we're already approaching a, a point where the technology risk is substantially low that will allow people to deploy it without huge amount of concern, right? Um, and, and I think that the real point of that really happening is that when those protocols will be insurable, right, and there is also a question of what will be the mechanism to insure those protocols because it might also be the, the case that they will be not be insured by, uh, you know, AIG or Munich Re, they will be insured by also, again, some kind of a decentralized finance-based insurance uh, capability. But, you know, I think that with the bigger protocols, we are slowly getting there, but but it, it takes time, right? But I think that if three years ago it was, you know, somewhat delusional, right? I think we are at the point where, you know, together with Compound, we launched Compound Treasury and, you know, we're working with Ave Arc on things that for people that understand the technology risk, they are willing to go in with massive amount of capital and use those protocols. Michael, earlier in the show, you talked about how a lot of your clients will migrate funds across different exchanges. I would suspect that's a decent amount of people just taking arbitrage opportunities across CFI exchanges. But what about people's activity? What about your clients' DeFi activities? Can you kind of compare and contrast the amount of activity that your clients use in a CFI world and then also how much activity is in a DeFi world? How do those things compare? And then when they are using the DeFi things that Fireblocks is hooked into, what is the frequent activities that you see your clients doing? Yeah, so let's start with some, uh, again, numbers, right? Um, Right now we have about, I would say, 80 clients that use our DeFi plugins, right? Out of, let's say, 500 clients, or let's say like, you know, 450 live clients, right? so we are approaching, right, the, almost like, you know, the 25%, I guess, right, um, of clients. And, you know, we see, I think on a daily basis, more and more clients basically asking us to activate those, those plugins for them, right? So there is uh, like a daily progression into, into, in, into that. And just to be, to, to set sort of the, the time frame, we basically launched our DeFi uh, beyond what we had with Compound, which we launched over a year and a half ago, the main uh, capabilities we launched uh, at the beginning of this year, right? Basically around January, right? So in six months, we basically managed to almost activate one quarter of our client base 
to to work with DeFi or they activated themselves. Uh, to be- that surprises me, by the way. 25% is a lot higher than I thought it would be. Yeah. I mean, also for me, I think that we didn't expect that there will be such a huge uptake. Um, I mean, I think that as of right now, there is still uh, a lot of, you know, we see a lot of crazy things that are still, you know, happening. Um, so I think a lot of people are still exper- experimenting with, you know, liquidity mining and, and they, uh, they um, every day they are trying basically new protocols and, you know, it's not only Ethereum. We, we think people are doing it on, on, uh, on, B, on, on Binance Smart Chain, which we support also. We think them doing that on uh, Polygon and Matic and those protocols, right? So you basically see some kind of like, you know, all over the place activity. Uh, and, and, and I think a lot of that is somewhat of experimentation. We do have quite a few clients that they have very clear strategies, right? In terms of how they work with DeFi, how they work with, for example, um, uh, you know, for, for example, something which I always found a very interesting example is, um, uh, stablecoin arbitrage opportunities, right? So basically you have this temporary arbitrage between synthetic stable coins, right? And, uh, and, and the asset-backed stable coins like USDC, right? And you have different uh, yield curves between them and, and there is an arbitrage. So there are, there are people that are essentially matching that arbitrage. And I guess the fascinating thing about that, right? Is that first and foremost, it's a strategy that is not like a, a crypto native strategy. It's basically a strategy that is taking from FX, where you know people will basically do um, you know foreign exchange currency arbitrage. And the second aspect of it is that because of what those people are doing, they essentially stabilizing right the uh, the the value of the synthetic stable coins, right? Because they essentially the activity they're doing is is continually sort of like, you know, bringing them closer to the actual dollar, right? Um, and yeah, and, and and that's, you know, it's not the vast majority of what people are currently doing, but that's maybe just an, a very interesting example of, uh, of things that I've seen people doing. There is also maybe another example that, that is just our personal example of how we use DeFi internally, right? So about 30% of our clients, instead of paying us with wire ACH or credit card, they pay us with stablecoin. And in general, in the very beginning, we basically told people only to uh, send us USDC. Um, and over time, we basically started to allow people to pay us with both packs and, and USDT. Now, the main issue that we have is that we don't, Eventually, we do need to, at some point, we do need to off-ramp those uh, tokens to, to fiat, right, for accounting reasons. But what are we doing in the meantime, right? The first thing that we do is we do use, uh, when someone, for example, pays us with uh, USDT, we use either 
Uniswap or Curve, right, to immediately swap it to to USDC with a very fairly minimal slippage, right? Um, the second thing that we do is that we do use Compound and Aave to basically generate a much higher interest rate on those deposits than any bank can offer now for you know the money that we raised from the VCs that is currently sitting in the bank, and you know at, at, in a good day we're basically getting you know twenty five bips, right? So um, and. That just this is just sort of a really interesting example where I think when I think about the real value of that, that's for me it's it's a mystery how come there isn't sort of a huge amount of businesses trying to do exactly that. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I love by the way that you are dog fooding your own tools to go bankless and like dog fooding these these crypto protocols basically. And like what we found too is like while we can't completely sever ties with the traditional banks of the world, right? The the DeFi ecosystem is just better. Right? Like lower wire uh transfer fees, higher interest rates, like just immediate uh transfers. Like it's just a better financial system. So like you know, g- good on you guys for uh, leading the way and actually using the tools that uh, you're building. Yeah, I mean, the first time we've done it was actually when we had a client that wanted to pass $30,000 with a credit card. And our option was to basically take it on Stripe and then to pay $1,000 to Stripe as a commission. Yeah. Right? <laughs> 3%, like, yeah. Yeah, and I thought like, okay, send, send, it, send it to StableCoin. I was, that was you know, a year and a half ago when the gas prices were low, right? So it cost us maybe 30 cents on the gas, right? But yeah, instead of $1,000 and 48 hours to get in our bank account, it was 15 seconds and, you know, 25 cents, right? So it's not uh, 10 times better, it's like 10,000 times better, right? Michael, earlier you talked about how Fireblocks is both the service provider for Compound Treasury and Ave Arc, the respective like institutional versions of those two major DeFi protocols. And before this conversation, I kind of thought that Compound Treasury and Ave Arc would be doing their own KYC in order to do their own onboarding for institutions, but it sounds like they are outsourcing that to Fireblocks and allowing you guys to do that lift of the journey for institutions to start to use these DeFi apps, which brings me to my question, A, is that true? And B, when you do the onboarding for an institution so they can start to use Compound Treasury, by definition, does that also make that same institution ready to be using Aave Arc? Is that how it works? So what we do with Aave is different than what we do with uh, Compound. And okay. it's, uh, and I think that uh, the way that I look right now on the institutionalization of DeFi is that we are currently in the in ex, sort of experimental phase around the compliance issues mm-hmm. over there, right? And and that's why I think we are taking different approaches with each, right? For for Compound, we actually for Compound Treasury, we actually not the uh, the um, uh, we, we we are not the uh, KYC um, provider uh, because of the way that they basically structured their um, um, th- th- their offering. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, 
and and what what is basically being done over there is that we do have an entity uh, that uh, is not our main entity. It's it's a it's a, it's a subsidiary that uh, has specific licenses that help them to do what they need to do. And clearly, there is a technology that is used by them to uh, do it in a secure way, uh, which guarantees the both the you know on ramping the funds, deploying them into the protocol, and so on. Uh, with with Ave, the situation is actually somewhat different. With Ave, what we are really experimenting is around creating um, what I would call a, an institutional pools, right? Where they're sort of gated, right? And they're gated by KYC. Mm-hmm. And it's true that uh, at least in the experimental phase of this, uh, Fireblocks is the uh, it, it, Fireblocks and the Fireblocks network essentially is sort of the KYC gate, right? Uh, we, because we uh, the, the advantage that we have is first of all because of uh, some specific capabilities that are related to that uh, entity. We do have um, uh, and uh, the machinery and the technology to basically properly KYC uh, clients. Or institutional clients, uh, which is not a, not a trivial task. And the second thing is that we know, or we are able to basically enforce um, a linkage between your identity and your wallet, right? Uh, that that is related to both the technology. It, uh, it is actually related to MPC, and uh, and uh, therefore, uh, when we allow you to enter through that gate. Um, because there is a whitelisting of your wallet, we can guarantee that this is your wallet, right? We can guarantee that this is your wallet. We can guarantee that the assets that are flowing through that wallet, the they belong to you. Um, you know, if you take, if you took assets from uh, a bad actor and you're trying to throw them into the pool because we have a partial control over that wallet through MPC, we can at least block you from doing that, right? So. Uh, the technology there is a there is a more interesting sort of combination of a mixture of technologies which basically allows us to operate those gates. So, Michael, I'm curious, like if you're to summarize this for us, when you're talking about those DeFi plugins that your clients have access to, right? This could be the institution, say, that wants to just invest in Aave and get a higher yield on their stable coins or Compound, right? So you've got like these lending and borrowing protocols. What other protocols do you have too? Just high level. Do you have like trading? If I'm an institution, can I click the Uniswap plugin or the SushiSwap plugin and start trading these long tail assets? And how about staking? Can I just like switch something on and suddenly start staking? Yeah. So um, first and foremost, initially we started with building the experience into the product itself uh, as a very intuitive experience where we actually have it still with Compound where you have an asset that you see in the wallet, you can click on it and one click, you basically, it's being deposited into Compound, right? But what we discovered very quickly is that there is this sort of like huge long tail, right? Of applications that everybody wants to access into. Some of it is because, you know, the real use, real use case and some of it is just basically chasing after some kind of a temporary yield, right? That exists over there. So we had to generalize. And 
the way that we generalize it is by essentially creating um, three main approaches. The first approach, which is sort of the easiest to understand, is API. So there is an API. If you want to interact with any smart contract, you have what we call the Firebox DeFi API. You basically can invoke a function. Um, that function is f- function of a smart contract, and that is has policies that are being checked and so on. The second is a browser extension, so very similar to MetaMask, but instead of basically using a wallet that sits in your browser or a hardware wallet, it actually links into the secure wallet platform of Fireblocks, the Fireblocks Vault. And the third, which is my personal most favorite plugin, is for Wallet Connect, right? So you go to a website, you basically click, you, you go to Compound or you go to OneInch, right? And you basically click connect my wallet, you click wallet connect, and then you're basically taking your phone, there is the Fireblocks app, you scan it, and behind the scene, it basically creates a bridge into your vault, and then you can basically interact through the through the wallet connect bridge. So those are the three uh, capabilities that we have as it relates to DeFi, and um, because of the generic capability there, Yes, you know, you can use Compound, you can use Aave, but you can use Uniswap, SushiSwap, you know, DYDX. You, you can know, use any, anything on DeFi then, anything, Wallet Connect, yeah, anything. anything that has a Wallet Connect yeah. uh, interaction point. Yeah, anything that has basically MetaMask or Wallet Connect, you can use. So what do you think of this idea of institutional DeFi? So we, we're seeing it start to play out with uh, Aave, start to play out with, with Compound. Is this going to be a thing? So you said you had 25% of your customer base start on DeFi. I'm guessing that's just all happened within the last year or so, like, you know, like a DeFi summer and post-DeFi summer phenomenon. But like, what's it going to take to get institutions really comfortable with DeFi? Is, uh, is institutional DeFi going to become a thing? Yeah, so I think it's important to clarify, right, that the 25% that are using it right now, they're using just the regular protocols, right? They're using, they're using those uh, three extensions, API, Wallet, Connect, uh, Web Browser extension, and they're accessing the same pools as anyone else, the same pool as the retail, right? There is nothing unique about uh, the specific protocol that they're accessing. Uh, so I guess that's one version of institutional yeah. DeFi, which is just like institutions now have a so, managed way to get access to all of the other DeFi protocols that we have. I yeah. guess that's one definition. Yeah, they, they, ha- they, they have a convenient, highly secure uh, way with in- internal guardrails that allows them to do it, right? The next phase of it is to solve the compliance or the regulatory issue, right? And I don't know uh, what is the percentage of the 75% that are not in DeFi right now from our customers that the reason why they are not in DeFi is because of the compliance regulatory issue, but at least from the subscription that I'm seeing into uh, testing some of those uh, newer initiatives, right, like the Compound Treasury and the Ave Arc, it, it is like, you know, 10, 20% at the very least, right, that are interested in in that type of product. There is an overlap, by the way, between the one that are using it right now and the people that want to be part of that offering as well. But definitely there are unique names over there that are not currently playing in DeFi because they don't have... Uh, because from a regulatory standpoint, 
they are uncomfortable with participating in a pool where there is uncertainty around where is the other crypto that is in that pool is coming from, right? And that's just basically, I guess, some kind of a regulatory limbo situation. And I guess like, you know, I don't need to basically, I mean, we can, but uh, I'm not sure that I need to give uh, like a 30 minutes uh, overview of uh, all the different uh, approaches that, you know, from FATF to FinCEN to, you know, all the other regulators, everything that they're trying, and, and, you know, the crypto bill in the United States. But I think that 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 entire, um, um, the, the regulatory environment around DeFi is unclear and is in flux, right? So their only way to deal with it is basically to say, okay, what are the most extreme procedures that I can take to still benefit from it? And that means that I'm going to only access basically a subset of the protocol that is gated and it's guaranteed that I'm basically entering into this game with uh, people that are in the same compliance level as I am. Let's touch on regulatory for a minute, like difficult to speculate what's going to happen next, but I'm curious how regulatory issues have impacted your business and what you really think about, like what keeps you up at night with respect to regulation? I think we've seen in the past couple of years, definitely some tailwinds, right, for crypto, like, you know, good, you know, regulatory initiatives. OCC said um, banks can hold crypto, for example. I imagine that was impactful. That was a great thing. We also have seen some some headwinds, right? There's the Gary Gensler speech that just came out as we're recording this this week. There's like comments like shadowy coders in the Senate. There's also, if you look toward the East, central bank digital currency in China and what they're doing to like get crypto miners out of China. But like, what's your take? What do you think about where we are with respect to regulation now? And what kind of worries you, what keeps you up at night? Um, I wouldn't say that I'm not worried, right? But I do think that um, on the long run, certain type of regulation is both necessary and good, right? Um, the, the main concerns that I have is that, you know, when you have, you know, hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? And that's, and, 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 and that's the situation right now that the regulators, they have frameworks that were created, whatever, like in the 40s, in the 1940s, in the 1970s, in the 1990s, right? But those frameworks are, one can argue if they're useful or not useful for, for um, a specific type of uh, ecosystem signal or finance. I mean, for everyone who spent enough time with the technology, he understands that the, and, and I think like, you know, there is a, diff- a slight difference between the SEC sort of view on things that they coming in and they're basically saying, look, you know, let's make sure that uh, people are not being defrauded, right, through uh, illegitimate ICOs to um, trying to enforce, um, you know, travel rule and compliance and BSA AML through tactics that just technologically do not comply, right? Because at the end of the day, let's take it like, you know, the, the most extreme proposals over there, which basically were trying to force KYC on hosted, unhosted, like, you know, take uh, 
take uh, uh, DeFi developers to hold DeFi developers as accountable, right, for what they are building. I think anyone who understands the technology, you know, enough understands that a, you know, it's just going to hurt the people that are doing the legitimate things and the people that are want to use this technology in an illegitimate way, right? The cyber criminals, the, you know, just the regular criminals or whatever, they can bypass all those things at the click of a button, right? There is nothing that holds you from, you know, taking a paper wallet, right? I mean, let's take like, you know, uh, the, the latest, uh, one of the latest proposals, right, that were uh, put in front of the Senate that they basically said, oh, by the way, uh, you know, unhosted wallets need to report on tax. Well, guess what? I can print a QR code on this piece of paper and it becomes an unhosted wallet. So now this piece of paper is responsible for reporting tax, right? So, so like people basically, I think, don't understand the extent of the technology and then what they're basically doing they're, 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 they're preventing the good usage and but they're not really blocking the bad usage of the technology so I think and, and that's like you know what honestly uh, worries me um, I think that or from everything that I've seen also in other domains in my experience and I've seen I think similar situation in the past you know just to give it maybe an interesting example from the privacy space, right? Maybe some of the uh, listeners remember the famous case of the FBI against Apple, right? That, you know, they're basically telling, we're telling Apple, hey, you know, we don't care, unlock this iPhone. And Apple was like, no, one, <laughs> we're not going to unlock this iPhone because we don't have the keys. And two, we are not going to introduce a backdoor because that goes against the will of our consumers. And if you want, like, you know, pa go pass a law, which will force us to do it, which clearly would not something that will fly in a modern democracy, right? So I think that, uh, you know, we will eventually face a similar situation where the technology will prevail and, and, and eventually it will, we will have tools that are self-regulated. There are quite a few exciting companies that I've seen recently that are coming to basically deploy identity, deploy compliance into DeFi and to do things in a, I don't know if it's like solve the problem 100%, but it's definitely going towards the right direction rather than trying to essentially, um, you know, come with this hammer and basically say, well, you know, everybody need to report every suspicious transaction. You need to KYC everyone and 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 uh, and, and 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 send SRs on everything that is suspicious. Like, yeah, that will not work, right? Uh, so that's just like you know my personal view. Michael, is there anything about regulation that has impacted the trajectory of your business at Fireblocks? Is there anything that you wanted to do but your lawyer said no due to regulation that? you also think is silly and should be changed? Um, I mean, look, I think actually for us, regulation was somewhat favorable around the OCC and a lot of the things that happened last year, right, which basically mobilized uh, what uh, is a very important segment of the market for us, right? So I'll give them that. Um, you know, there were things that we worked hard recently to put in place. Um, for example, we block OFAC, 
transactions, right, uh, in the world. So there were things that we had to do or comply with. Um, you know, there were customers that we didn't agree to service them because we thought that it was uh, too too high of a risk, right? So there are things that um, I believe that whether it's regulation or just like our own reasonable judgment that prevents us to, to do that. And beyond everything else, there is, uh, I think, beyond the regulation, there is just like, you know, pure reputational risk, right? So eventually, when you play the game that we play, uh, you the reputation is important. And I think you need to basically uh, be thoughtful in terms of how certain things will be perceived uh, by by your customers or by your prospects. Michael, this has been uh, really interesting. Like, thanks for walking us through this. We have just a few more things that we want to cover with you as we close here. You know, I want to talk maybe about a worry that listeners might have, and it's a worry in the back of my mind too, right? So this podcast is called Bankless. This entire movement is called Bankless, right? This is a movement to restore self-sovereignty to to the individual, right? Peer-to-peer type transactions. My worry is not that you guys won't be successful, but my worry is that you'll be too successful. So picture a world where Fireblocks or someone else like Fireblocks has all of the world's crypto assets. They're all institutional. They're all custodied. They're not fully bankless. And then what happens? What if you guys get acquired by Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan or worse, Wells Fargo, <laughs> right? David, Wells Fargo yeah. could be that acquiring company. Then we're back to the same spot. Well, then then they would just open accounts, right? For people that don't exist. That's like, you know. Well, yeah. well so like, so yeah. can, can you allay these fears, right? So yeah. there is there is this important thing that we are trying to build, which is a new financial system that is not a financial system full of the same banks we just left. Like, hey, here's the, new boss, same as the old boss. Um, Is what you're doing as important as it is right now as a bridge to institutions and DeFi and crypto, does it also have a trade-off here? Could we be centralizing this system in this way? What are your thoughts? uh, It's a a very important concern and something that actually philosophically we think a lot about, right? Uh, And, you know, in other podcasts, you will hear me saying that one of the reasons that Fireblocks works the way that Fireblocks works and not the way that, for example, Coinbase Custody works is that, at least in our case, the institution that we serve is in direct custody, right? So Fireblocks, like Fireblocks as a company, right? We don't have access to, to the keys or to, to the sufficient amount of key material to really operate on behalf of our class clients. So, so first and foremost, I do believe at the very least in the institutional idea around not your, you know, not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right? So basically each one of our individual customers is keys is Bitcoin, right? Not our keys. Um, On the long run, I do think that what we are seeing over here, and maybe I'm just like sort of uh, shooting myself a bit in the foot, right? Is that we actually looking into a temporary situation, right? And I think that like that the thesis that we have is that eventually the reason that it's now important to work with the banks and it's important to work with Jimmy Dimon, it works important to work, work with Wells Fargo, is to bring it to the masses, right? I think that once we will bring it to the masses, right, and my you know grandma will have access to Bitcoin, this is where we will actually be able to unlock 
self-custody, you know, wallets that are completely non-custodial, and people will like, you know, will start to see an outflow, right, from those institutions. And then you can ask yourself, okay, so, you know, then you guys, Fireblocks, are, are doomed, right? Because basically what, what's happening right now is that you essentially, um, you know, selling a service that, that eventually will disintermediate your own clients. So the way that I think about it is that, look, in eventually, like, you know, financial institutions and not financial institutions at the end of the day, we have businesses, right? And those businesses need to run and they need to do their own finance. And I'm actually looking forward for the world where my clients are not necessarily only Wells Fargo or JP Morgan, but my clients are Airbnb and, you know, uh, Uber and Booking.com and Spotify and all those guys that are internet companies that honestly, for them probably this technology means more than, I mean, except of the retail, you know, if we think about, uh, you know, unbanking, um, I think that there is unbanking for the retail, but there is also unbanking for the businesses, right? Because right now, all those businesses that we value and we use their services, right, they're being banked, right? And, you know, sometimes they don't get the best service, right? Sometimes they're being overcharged. And the main question is how, can I eventually go direct to them, enable them, and help them do what they want to do? Good thoughts there, Michael. Now, you know, as we close, I was going to ask like general predictions about crypto in the next five to 10 years. But, you know, I feel like that's pretty specific and it's difficult for someone to give just general predictions. Um, here's what we have, Michael. So Dave and I have talked about this a lot. So bankless listeners will be familiar with this. This is what we call the DeFi mullet thesis. And this is what we think is happening uh, in general with fintech right now, which is a whole bunch of fintech companies are about to grow out their DeFi mullet, right? So fintech in the front, DeFi in the back, crypto rails in the back. And that seems to be what's happening. So your comment about like, hey, when I look at BlockFi and when I look at Revolut, they're actually converging on the same thing. They're all like fintech companies that are hybrid crypto, right? So I'm curious if you could make some predictions in this area since you're so close to it, right? We see Visa, they're getting into crypto, they're hiring blockchain people. We see PayPal, what are they doing? We see, um, you know, a Square, Jack Dorsey's talking about DeFi, all these things. Um, how is the DeFi mullet going to play out in the coming, let's say, one to three years? Do you think all of these fintechs will convert to crypto rails and how's that going to look? Yeah, so I guess it goes to my previous comment around this is the essence, right? I think that um, is that going to happen in the next three years? Well, I hope, right? I'm not uh, entirely sure that uh, it will move that fast, but I do think that for the, the the two things need to happen, right? Um, one is definitely sort of the access and what Fireblocks is doing and sort of just helping them to do it in a secure and compliant way, which is, uh, you know, paramount for, for, for the access or like, you know, for the nice hair that they have <laughs> the back, right? Uh, like, you know, someone that go and comb their hair. And the, and, the, and the second aspect there is that we need more assets, right, on DeFi, right? Or we need more instruments, right? Because I think that one of the problems that we're seeing that I, I, I'm I, also quite concerned of, right, is that right now we have Bitcoin, 
we have, you know, a bunch of tokens that are protocol tokens that, you know, their value is sort of derived from what that protocol utilization will be. But beyond that, it's not that much of a interest, right? We have some governance tokens that uh, are important, but again, it's not, uh, um, you know, really meaningful. And then we have stable coins, right? Stable coins for me, it's like, you know, really uh, a very important instrument. I don't think that CBDC will happen that quickly and therefore stable coins are really, really good, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, instrument. But now we need basically like to bring more, you know, real world tokens into this ecosystem for the DeFi protocols to be effective, right? Because, you know, the value of swapping uh, USDC with Ethereum is only a va- is only valuable if you're speculating on Ethereum, right? Or you need to, I don't know, buy gas, right? But um, the value of basically swapping USDC to an NFT or to a tokenized real estate or to, you know, I don't know, mortgage or something that can actually represent a financial instrument is um, is actually like, you know, very, very useful. And I think for, for, for this ecosystem not to sort of like, you know, just uh, collapse into itself, we need to see uh, the fintechs and the FIs basically starting to deploy Mint, you know, and bring more uh, representable assets into the blockchain for the DeFi to really become maybe like, you know, not only the back, but also the front. Really cool insight. I haven't heard that take before. Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you. And you thank you for Fireblocks. Thank you for being the hairspray in the <laughs> DeFi mullet to tie all of these things together, sir. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on Bankless. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate that. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Action items for you. Um, one is get a job in crypto. Wow. Fireblocks just raised $300 million. I bet they are hiring. Every crypto company I know of is hiring as well. We have a job board at Bankless. We will include a link to that in the show notes. Has some of the hottest jobs in crypto. You could check that out. Also, David, we need some more five-star reviews. We're doing really well, but guys, if you are a long-time listener of Bankless, have not done a five-star review, what should they do, David? They should go to wherever they listen to podcasts and make sure that you give us those five-star reviews so Bankless can get to the top of the iTunes business and investing podcast where we always have wanted to be, yet we are not there yet. So if you could help us by giving those those five-star reviews, it would be greatly appreciated. All right, guys, none of this was financial advice. None of this was hairstyle advice. <laughs> ETH and crypto are risky. Wait, we're allowed to get hair So is guys. DeFi. <laughs> we won't get in trouble <laughs> for <right>. that. <laughs> Next podcast. You can lose what you put in, guys, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on The Bankless Journey. 